Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Today I'm speaking to First Base, a mixed-use developer working across the UK. What's interesting about them is on their website, they have a social value statement that discusses how people are one of the most important assets in every place. Maybe that's not so original. Many developers have these statements, but what struck me was the list of social value outcomes that they list for every project they're involved in. For example, at Soapworks in Bristol, their social value outcomes include reducing crime, minimizing homelessness, enabling community development and activity, and developing a diverse economy amongst other ambitions. Stating an ambition clearly like that is a little bit less like the development speak we often hear, which includes um, ideas about inclusive amenity space or or other concepts that are rarely laid out in in plain language and stated and listed ambitions for development. So I think the best place to start is, could you um, introduce yourselves? Of course. So my name is Barry Jessup. I'm a director and owner of a business called First Base. Uh, we are mixed-use developers focused in the, the south of England, um, really with an agenda that goes beyond simply bricks and mortar and really focuses on lots of the uh, economic, uh, social, uh, and environmental aspects of development. Uh, so that's something we're passionate about. So we, we start right from the beginning. We buy vacant sites in city centres and we try to take it all the way through to the end where we're you know, handing over large, new, high-quality developments to, to the local community. And I'm Elida Obo. Um, I am Director of Partnerships at First Base. Um, my focus is really on relationships, really. Um, we think that um, in order to create a successful place, we've got to build and maintain really important relationships really early on. You, know, you start even before we've acquired anything, um, you know, building the right relationships with people, whether those are people who've a vested interest in, in the place or actually people who, just, who might walk past it every day for the rest of their lives. So that's a really important part of what we do. And we think those relationships are critical to, to creating successful outcomes for that place. And so my role really covers all of that in terms of engaging with people, um, making sure that we build like partnerships that help the, the place develop um, and maintaining those over a period of time because what we don't do is build and leave. What we do is we build and we stay involved. So, and that's a key part of, of the work that we do across London and South East. I think one thing that struck me when I visit the First Face website is that you have a social value statement right up there. Um, is that just a statement or how do you embody that in the work that you do? I, I think it's so much more than just a statement, but I think it, it, we'll talk a little bit more in a moment, perhaps, about the, the detail of what that means, and Lide can pick some of that up. But for me, it should be fundamental to everything that a developer does. So I, I think you know, we as developers, we, we we should be so much more than a builder. You know, we're really there to try to create and curate a new community, or to allow the community to 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 effectively to, to move in and to adopt and to mold what we what we provide them with to something they they want long term um social value forms a crucial part of that it really is something that should be embedded in the project throughout 
So whether that's with the initial engagement, whether that's in helping to determine, you know, the uh, and understand that the heritage of the site and of the local area, whether it's then trying to embed a lot of those values into uh, in the way that we design and create um, the places that we are creating, all the way through then the the the, the economic aspect of development and the building and how do you how do you engage people with that and how do you help them to improve their lives uh, uh, right through to the end and and what do you leave uh, behind in terms of the legacy uh, and how people will then again use that to 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 help to improve their their their, their lifestyle so there are so many things um that um are so important and frustrates frustrates us frankly when we see so many uh developers who don't seem to make any effort at all to to engage uh and to to deliver more than simply uh a max, maximizing the bottom line so i'll like to pick that up in a little bit more detail perhaps i i just think it's a, it's a tragedy that you can deliver a you know 300, 400 million pound scheme in a location and that area doesn't isn't positively impacted as a result of that. I think that's unfortunately that does happen. And um, we from the outset are very, very clear with people that we are engaging with that you know our job is to make sure that everyone, you know, is is everything and everyone is improved as a result of this. And we're not trying to solve we, we're not going to solve every issue. But what we try and do is focus on not the bricks and mortar, not the physical you know, structures in the buildings, actually how how are people's lives going to be impacted? You know, and we work in some of the most challenging urban environments, you know, where you have all the typical issues that you'd expect, you know, deprivation, crime and unsocial behavior. And sometimes as I can I think some of developers might come in and think, well how what do I do? You know, I'm I'm here to build a building. But I think for us it's about, you know, developers picking their head up and actually looking at the area that they're working and they're thinking about what are those little or sometimes significant things that we can do to really make a difference? And you know, for example, we we are currently constructing a scheme in Brighton. We've been in Brighton for the best part of six years now. Um, and we've gotten to understand the local community really, really well. And some of the things that we're doing in terms of delivering social value are not about our building and not about the scheme that we're delivering, but it's about things like the massive issue around social isolation. You know, and it's not just about older re- residents, but some of the students who are living in the area. So what do we do about that? You know, what's our role in helping to bring young, younger generations and older generations together? What type, what should we be putting into that community to support people so that they're not isolated, they don't feel isolated? You know, so it's much more than the usual, oh, we'll put local jobs in and we'll put, you know, we'll get people back into construction and all of that. It's about really looking at what the real issues are and how we can improve people's life chances. So that's what social value means to us. It's about life chances. And, and, and it's, it's, it's incredible, really, because it, development is really about the people, and, and, it, and that's where it should be. But it's amazing how poor most developers are uh, in explaining what the benefits are in what, of what they're doing to the local community, to the broader stakeholders in a in a city where typically development is something that happens to them rather than with them. Frankly, it's not hard to engage people and to try to to try to be a, a good neighbour, to try to create something that everybody can can benefit from long term. But it's extraordinary how few people actually do it. 
So can we talk a little bit about process there? Because I think there's there's this sense that, you know, community engagement is something that happens. Sometimes it happens digitally. Sometimes it happens in the rainy community hall that people talk about. Um, there's the feedback process might occur. Uh, it might be a variable quality. And then what happens to that feedback? How does it shape? And then is it over then? And how do you carry it through? And I liked some of the words you used about you know, creating and creating a, a place that then is adopted and then continues to change. You know, how do you leave that door open for change? So it is, I mean, it's it's something that takes a bit of planning and thinking. It's not hard to talk to them, but I, it, how do you integrate um, that, that feedback and that participatory process into the, I guess, the shape of the project? I think that probably the most important thing to start with, and I'll start with a bit of a cliche and then move into actually what it means in practice, is you've got to listen to people. Uh, and and the process historically, certainly, certainly the engagement process as set out by statute and under sort of planning regulations, doesn't actually encourage you to listen to anybody because of the way that, as, you, as you've mentioned, the, you know, the rainy town hall on a Tuesday lunchtime. Well, who, who really is capable of attending that? It's a very small cross-section of society. So one of the things that we really tried to address initially was to make sure that we do engage with a much broader cross-section of society. So we, we worked with a company called Built ID to develop a, a, a community engagement app called Give My View. Um, which we were early pioneers of. And what that does as a, for instance, is it allows you to target a much broader cross-section of society. So we, we talk about engaging with the, the silent majority. Um, so rather than sort of getting 117 different views from a very similar demographic profile on a Tuesday lunchtime, you can actually start engaging with people who maybe can't either leave their homes or are busy commuting to work or have childcare issues or just, just a much broader cross-section of society. So what you then get through engaging and listening to those people is a much fairer representation of what the local area needs um, and what you as a developer could be giving them that's going to allow them to improve their lives going forward. And, and in terms of where we then take that, having listened, we were able to revert back to that same group of people with either explanations of, of, of how we've interpreted their messaging and what, it, what does it mean in, in real life? You know, where are we, are we focusing our money and our efforts? Um, uh, but also then to sometimes have to explain why you can't do certain aspects. Because as, as Elida said, we can't, we can't change the world. But what we can do is we can make things, um, we can make things much easier um, for people to adopt and to to to, to stimulate change, uh, and and so we found this to be very very successful. I think we used it in Bristol, for example, in our SoapWorks scheme. I think we had over three thousand respondees within a couple of weeks of launching it, and that's really given us a very strong basis upon which to then uh, to evolve some of the design aspects of the development to make sure that we are we are reflecting. I will come on to this later, no doubt, reflecting the heritage of the area uh, and you know, some of those unique characteristics that every single location has. Olaide, well, you've shown me some of the questions in the app, and I think what's really interesting is how plain language they are. You know, do you like, are you happy with? And that doesn't strike me as something that, I mean, we do often have this kind of development speak that happens in these community engagements where it's quite, it's, it's quite abstract language. It's kind oh, of about... 
it's, you know, it's when we talk about public realm and, you know... In, in, amenity space. And, you know, amenity. <laughs> what does that actually, you know, for, you know, Janet walking up the street, that means absolutely nothing to her. And I think as, as Barry as well articulates, I think the only thing I'd add is that we start those conversations really early, actually, and I think that's how you build trust. You don't go into a community of vested interest saying, I want to build, you know, a 15-storey building next door to you, actually. You know, it's part of, what, part of what we do is we go into locations that we think we'd like to work in really early. And we see, I always laugh about it because I see it as a, it, it's a bit like dating. Because you go into that location and you see if actually do, do our values work well here? Is it is it somewhere that actually you know, the things that we like to do, like social value, you know, focus on sustainability, you know, do, will that land well here? And I think that's part of the that's part of the journey that we go on. And actually, if we think that's right, then we go in and have some deeper conversations about. You know, what's your ambition? What are the aspirations for this town, city, you know, area, region? Again, if those seem to be well aligned with our priorities, then we go into the next step. And I think you've got to do that properly rather than because I think what tends to happen is people jump in, decide what they want to do, and then it's okay, let's just go and have a five minute in a community hall on a Wednesday night and hope that you know we can check our board rather than having meaningful conversations really early. And when you build that trust at the beginning you are going to have difficult conversations with local residents stakeholders throughout but you've built that trust you've listened as, as barry said and as a result we are we, we are in it together you know we both want to succeed so actually the push and pull comes and we because we trust each other we you know we've got a relationship that 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 those difficult conversations are a bit easier to have over the course of time and because those the conversations aren't ending at planning consent we're still having those conversations throughout the process it's become a much, much more meaningful development, we, we believe, at the end. So, I mean, what I think I do want to make clear is clearly we don't get everything right. We're not pretending to. Uh, and neither could we actually give everybody what they want. I mean, it's, it's, it's not possible. But by having those discussions regularly and early in the process, you can at least start to manage people's expectations. Um, and or you can try and – you can where there are changes you can make, then you, you – you you crack on with those, so I, I think that's really important. It, it's it's in a sense, it's just good development practice to make sure you're speaking to to people who are the long term stakeholders in your development. So I want to ask about what happens after development because I think that's maybe something you're looking ahead and thinking about now. When we talk about this idea of uh, adopting those spaces or leaving room for the community to somehow make it their own. What is your thinking around that and how is that thinking changing either through you getting really, really good at this early bit, you know, 3,000 responses and what do you do with that? Something that could be quite overwhelming, I think, for some developers to have that level of feedback and understand what to do with it and that level of accountability as well to, to that community. Um, and then also, you know, thinking about when you're handing it over or you're kind of cutting the ribbon. Uh, perhaps in phases, but in, in any case, when the ribbon is cut, what happens then? So, so I've got probably two aspects to to, to, to that question. Um, firstly, I think it is extraordinary to still to see how many developments just get handed over, as you describe it, you know, with 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 a ribbon, with very little thought for what happens afterwards. A lot of developers are effectively glorified contractors, um, and and that's just wrong. But one of the reasons that happens, of course, is because it's actually much harder to think about what happens long term in a development or or in a community than um, it is just to simply build 
uh, building. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we like, really tried to choose to specialize in mixed use development, because we think it's by doing that. And when I say mixed use, again, it's a bit of jargon. What I don't mean by that is, is you know, a residential apartment block with a Tesco Metro on the ground floor. That's not mixed use in our world. What we mean by mixed use is a is a complementary mix of different types of uh, um, property uses, which might be residential, which might be a hotel, which might be a bar, might be a restaurant, might be convenience retail, uh, et cetera. And there are lots of other uses in there as well that um, will create the, the fundamentally important uh, elements of, of long-term communities. So that's where you start. But then equally for us, a lot of our focus through this process and talking to the local community is on then the public spaces and the spaces between the buildings. We actually pay much more attention to that element rather than the buildings themselves. The buildings themselves will be beautiful, they'll be architecturally you know, well-designed, etc. But that's not what most people see. Unless you're a resident or an occupier in an office, you don't really see what happens inside. You're much more interested in you know, the, the impression the building makes to on the outside and the way that it addresses the street and how you engage with it. So um, um, we were heavily involved with uh, East Village uh, over in Stratford. And I think that is a great example of, of a community that now feels very well lived in. It's been thoroughly adopted by the people who, who work, uh, live and play there. Um, and, but that creates a really nice, successful long-term place. Uh, if you've been there recently, you know, you'll, you'll see, you know, the parks and the, you know, the picnic areas and, and a lot of the independent shops. Um, and it just feels like somewhere that you'd want to live. And sometimes it's, it's as simple as that and applying that test to, to what you're creating. Well, I think um, talking about that uh, in community engagement and then the kind of post um, engagement, if you, if you will, what's changing uh, due to COVID? Because obviously you were already quite digital in that sense, uh, but also just in the way you're thinking about um, reaching out to people and then also bringing people together. I mean, are there things that are changing about that? And maybe Barry, you know, you talked about mixed use. Maybe it's worth touching on after that, how mixed use thinking is changing because obviously we have some unknowns and you might not have an exact answer, but you might be having discussions about how your approach to mixed use or how you're looking at mixed use. I think in a very practical way, obviously we you know, haven't had many face-to-face -face meetings over the past few months um, and the, the digital still you know, has worked really well and lots of people have adopted that more and more so. Um, I think as we move, hopefully, um, over the next few months out of the you know, lockdown process, I think people, people do want to see people. You know, um, you know people are wanting that face-to-face -face human contact. And I think for us, whilst we do heavily um, focus on the digital side in terms of using Give My View, that doesn't, that's not a replacement for the face-to-face. -face. We still, you know, there are still lots of communities out there who are, you know, not digitally um, enabled in that sense. So they do need that face-to-face -face contact. They do need door knocking. They need the, you know, how are you doing, you know, and popping around to see. And actually during a lockdown, we've had We've done a lot of that, you know, going into our community to make sure that people are okay. People who don't have access to, you know, as, as, as crazy as it might sound, people don't have access to the internet. Um, so we've had to do a lot more of that. And I think there is, um, as we forget that, we are working in some of our communities and people do need, still need that human contact. So I think 
in a very practical sense, you know, we'll we'll continue to combine that um, as we as we move out of the pandemic process. And, and can I just uh, just just expand on that a little bit? Um, because I think um, uh, when we talk about engagement as well, it's important to understand we're not just talking about community engagement. So when we're talking about engagement with local businesses. We're talking about, no, and that, that might be through their, you know, representative bodies. It might be, you know, you know we go and knock on the doors of, of cafe shops and cafes and shops and, and factories, et cetera, and, and talk to the individuals because that's important as well. Also, I wouldn't downplay the role of, of education in this and sort of bringing it back to some of the social value aspects we talked about previously. Well, clearly, in a post-COVID world, we know there is going to be you know, a lot more, uh, a lot of challenges around employment and around training, and there'll be a need for a lot of people to retrain. Um, so, I, I, and, and that's at all levels of education. So whether that's that's engaged with local schools or, or technical colleges or universities, and th- there's, there's a really important role, I think, for, for education to play in development. And to an extent, to, to, to the point where it doesn't at the moment, we'll, we'll perhaps talk about some of the sort of environmental sustainability elements later. But it's incredible for me that so many great ideas come out of universities and, and colleges, but never get reflected in day-to-day development. And 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 that that that's 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 a crucial crucial part of this. But just bringing it back to COVID, just for the, for the, for the short term, the it it is it is more difficult um, um, in terms of the mix of uses and the question you asked there. They're not going away. No, the the idea that everybody's going to be you no, know, he's going to be sat at home or or doing everything digitally and uh, not engaging in in, in in sort of public spaces is no, frankly, wrong. Clearly, there are issues at the moment, but people will still want to engage in that way. Uh, is life is not about efficiency. Uh, you know, that's not how most humans are wired. Life life is about actually creating. Uh, um, a, a learning and uh, innovation environment, and that's what all, what most people strive for m- m- most of the time. And and a lot of these mixed use places will be crucial in developing those those skills, but also in in providing people with an experience. And that's why people set foot outside of their front door often is to go and have a high quality of experience. So, you no, know, will those mix of uses will they change? You know, are, are hotels currently economically challenged? Absolutely, they are. You know, are retailers like, struggling? A number are some are doing fine, um, and but they'll still have a very important role to play in all of the communities that we create, um, because people do and want to shop, and people do and want to go to the cafe and the pub, etc. So it's really just making sure that um, um, we're reflecting the long-term trends rather than necessarily any sort of knee-jerk reaction to what is obviously a, a, a worrying crisis. I think it's a little bit early and it's kind of an unfair question to put to you anyway about what what, what a post-COVID city is going to be like. But I know you'd, you'd be talking to some of those um, retailers and, and people in the hospitality industry. Is your sense that the feeling is still hold on tight, it's temporary and it's all going to go back? Or are there starting to be conversations about actually, is there a fundamental shift happening here? And when do we know if there's a fundamental behavioral shift happening? I mean, certainly outdoor spaces have never been more valued. Uh, and these these green spaces, though, some of them that were so busy during lockdown are kind of going back to being less busy now. So, you know, we don't know whether that was a major behavioral change where everyone's going to want to walk in their park for an hour every day or if that was just a temporary blip. And then the homeworking thing as well, you know, will it settle into it a new pattern or will people go back to a kind of, full-time pattern 
Um, and and I think that actually, as as humans, we're probably all quite divided about that. Um, just as you know, as regular people. But it would be interesting to hear from your perspective um, where your thinking is. If it's on a you know we're on a, tra- a slow trajectory return to um, previous normal whether you do think we're on a trajectory to an unknown new normal. Uh, I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll pick that up first and Lydie can jump in. I, I, I think from my perspective, if you look at the, without getting too sort of scientific or technical, if you look at the evolution of, of humanity, you know, humanity and society have, have uh, societies have thrived through interaction, through trade, through learning and all of those aspects. And that's really a fundamental part of what, what makes us, you know, the society and the people that we are. I don't see that changing. Uh, I really don't. Um, I know how long it will take to return to inverted commas normal. Um, time will tell. And what will normal look like? Will it look the same as it did in 2019? No. But then it wasn't going to anyway. Times were changing. You know, people were working from home more. But the millennials and, you know, Gen Zs do not want to commute. They, there's much more of a rebellion against that than there was perhaps for, 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 for my generation. So those trends were changing. Retail had become more experiential and less simply about, you know, loading up your your supermarket trolley. So all of those trends were happening already, and I think they will continue to happen. And there are some very sensible changes that will be made as part of the the ongoing uh, uh, process of of adapting to COVID-19 that, frankly, should have happened anyway. You know, was it right that we all just made our way into to work anyway, to sit at our desk? And uh, I think people call it sort of, you know, presentism or uh, when you've got a cold and a a bug and actually everybody else in the office gets it of course not that was always selfish in the first place just to sort of try and demonstrate to your boss that you know you're you're working hard where you can work just as hard from home and everybody now knows that um but equally people can't work from home all all of the time because without engagement people don't learn Uh, and i think that's always already becoming apparent we know i think through this crisis that the people that have suffered the most are the younger people either through a reduction in opportunity in the future or just an inability to learn um, from others because that's what we do all the time. So look, I, 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 for me, what we will see is a continuation of the previous trends, which are people want to commute less, so you're going to have people living closer to where they work. That was already happening. People want a great experience when they go shopping. Um, they don't just want to load up the shopping trolley if they can help it. So that, 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 will, that will change as well. Uh, um, and, and then finally, on the technical side, uh, paint, for example, a really simple example. You can buy paint today that has um, not only very strong environmental uh, credentials in terms of absorbing sort of uh, um, bad gases from the air, but equally has antibacterial benefits. Why wouldn't you put those into all of the common areas? I mean, there's, the cost increment of doing that is very low, but the benefits of doing that are obvious. So uh, in, in either pre- or post-COVID world, uh, we, we, we were obviously looking to do this in a pre-COVID world, but the benefits now are even more significant. So there's some simple, really simple changes that we can, we can, we can, um, we can push through that are going to help us but they were happening anyway. Brass fittings in all the bathrooms and common <laughs> areas. Olaide, I wanted to ask you about public-private partnerships. They've had uh, different trajectories over the years. Are, are you, do you have a sense of how they're changing, if they're changing, not just in a post-COVID environment, but what are those relationships? Because I think the, 
you know, partnership has become key to successful development delivery, all kinds of partnerships. Yep. And this is, this is your heartland. So tell me what's happening and, and, uh, and how those are um, the challenges and the opportunities in, in partnering. As, as you rightly said, um, public and private partnerships have had gone through many, many journeys. And I think from skepticism to, um, you know, lack of trust and mistrust on both sides, if you want to call it that. But I think, I think from my perspective, I don't think all you have to go down a fully formal route for it to be successful. I think sometimes you need a, um, you know, so people get fixated on, you know, you've got to sign a contract to make sure we work together. And actually, what we look for is to build that relationship with the public sector. Um, and when I go into locations that we might interest in doing some work with, it's not because I'm going there to sign a, a partnership agreement from day one. And actually, what I'm looking to do is to make sure we're aligned in our priorities, so that actually we understand the, the challenges that this area faces and how through the work together we can help alleviate, alleviate issues. Um, and we, we form this sometimes informal agreement together to make some to create something that's successful. Sometimes it is formal. Sometimes you need that formality because you know we, we both want to sit at the table together. We want to make sure that we both both have skin in the game, if you want to call it that, and we want to you know develop it over a long period of time. But I think our focus sometimes is less on de- delivering a, you know this formal process, and actually informal still works, informal still delivers. And I think for us, it's about you know it's, it's similarly when it, it talks about our relationship with, with stakeholders, your local local communities, with local businesses. It's about trust. It's about, you know, we're, we're, very, we're an open book. We're very clear about what our deliverables are. Um, and we also understand what the other side challenges are. And when we work with local authorities, you know, our, we've got a three, five-year development program. They have a 500-year because they're not leaving. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. So it's understanding those as well, that, you know, you have a long-term view. We support that long-term view, albeit we're looking for a deliverable that's probably going to be in a five, ten-year time frame misunderstanding that which is important so i think for me i think there's absolutely a role i think you, can, you know i don't see any any of our developments that can't get that we will deliver without having a public private partnership is impossible to do we think it's absolutely critical to every single thing we do you have to have public sector sitting there private sector sitting there and the third sector sitting there as well it's, it's really important as a as a three you know all of us have to sit there to deliver it successfully but whether that's formal or informal doesn't matter it's that nature that all our aspirational ambitions are aligned. Are local authority priorities changing are, or are they as individual as the place that you're in? I, I, I think, well, firstly, every single location is individual. No, no, no two are the same. And I think it's a mistake that um, we've seen elsewhere um, where you end up with very prescriptive policies that try to treat every location in the same way. And for me, that's wrong. Um, um, so I couldn't agree more with Elide. Every single one of our developments is, is a public-private arrangement in name, or if not in contract, because if you're not working with the local authority, you're working against them, and that cannot be the right thing. And I think it's interesting, if you look at some of the planning reforms that the government is talking about at the moment, um, very well-meaning, no doubt, um, but they're really focused on two things. They're, they're actually focused on bad developers or bad local authorities. 
because they're either trying to force a local authority to do something they shouldn't, they don't want to do, but they should be doing, or they're allowing bad developers to allow them to, to do something they shouldn't be doing. So what's interesting is, you know, a good developer and a good local authority will reach a, a consensus on what is needed. And it's hard work, which is why some people don't want to do that. But but that's that needs to be where things where, where the public-private partnerships work. It shouldn't be about paint by numbers. It shouldn't be about a top-down policy uh, um, enforcement. It really should be about collaboration because without that, you end up with, de with developments that nobody wants. I want to dive into one of your developments now because I think um, it's always interesting to talk about these ideas but now kind of bring them into the interplay into one of the sites. So can, can you tell me a little bit about Bristol? In your work there. So uh, let me kick off. Um, Soapworks is um, our, our development site in uh, the centre of Bristol. Um, it is the home of the, the uh, Gardner Haskins uh, a department store. That is an example of where retail has moved on, and it was it was no longer um, sort of what the market and what shoppers were looking for. Um, but we 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 acquired the site and been working very closely with the with the owners um, to bring something forward that we think is a, a a bit of a monument monument to the past. So it's very much focused on the heritage of the site. Um, we're retaining a, fab, a fantastic Victorian um, brick factory, which used to be. Uh, soap works hence the name for the development and we're surrounding that with um, um with some residential homes including a policy level of affordable housing um, but also um offices uh we're looking at a, a, a hotel and then uh, most importantly for me some fantastic public realm um with you no know, bars restaurants and then just as importantly for me trying to make sure that we bring people into the fabulous soapworks building so making sure that's accessible to the public again you often see these developments like this where the, the, the most beautiful building is then converted into residential which means that the only people that ever get to benefit from that are the people who live there so something we're trying to do here is to make sure that we you know through a use of you know a, a, effectively a, a food hall and some uh, some some service office space we can get as many people as possible into into that space and we know that bristol um it ha has very high priorities around sustainability and a very strong social value agenda. So again, it, it, the, the the development really focuses on that. Uh, you know, we're, we're tapping into the uh, the local um, district heating system, etc. Uh, um, and um, it will achieve a lot of the a lot of very high sustainability sustainability standards. So I think all of those things I think are really important to us. Uh, and we've developed those ideas very much in consultation with the local community. Uh, and uh, also um, with with people who we hope will end up occupying these spaces, uh, local cafes, you know, bars, restaurants, you know, food operators, and people like that. Bristol's been the heart of some pretty dramatic protests around uh, heritage, and I think it's interesting how I've seen that word heritage go from being something that we want to hold on to and preserve to something extraordinarily problematic and kind of scary. Um, in this case, a soapworks factory doesn't sound problematic in and of itself, and I think um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I think, but I think it, it's kind of in this in this context. Has it made you kind of rethink your approach to heritage in the in the first place? You know, do you? do you see yourselves in future kind of doing additional checks to make sure that the kind of what you decide to keep and what you decide to, to give away is actually um, 
not in a way, you know, uh, linking to to past colonial legacies that you feel uncomfortable with. Well, we 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 we, we love heritage, and we 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 take a real kind of thorough um, process in terms of understanding it. Because I think for us, it's it's a critical part of what we're doing. If we're de- if you're delivering a new place, how can you do that without understanding its past? So. You know, in everything that we do, all our schemes, Brighton, Bristol, etc., we have spent a lot of time um, with experts. So, for example, in Bristol, we worked with um, uh, the University of Bristol, actually. So we worked with a history department who helped us undertake a root and branch um, review of what the place was and what it's, what did it do, everything from its colonial past, etc. Um, and worked with a place with Donald Insaw, who did a lot of work in terms of, again, understanding its heritage, its history, and its role within the city um, and, and elsewhere. So I think for us, it's really important to understand that. And we can then, at that point, we can have some really honest and frank discussions between ourselves and our professional team and with the community about you know, this place's past and how we can start to understand what its future will be. I think that's really important. Um, you know, you don't, you don't, we shouldn't shy away from it, we shouldn't hide it, but be honest and upfront. Um, and that's what we've done in Bristol. Interestingly, our, our scheme in Bristol doesn't have that past. Um, but if it did, we would be having really honest conversations. And the, its past is interesting. And we are I mean, we're, we're working with the local school children who are next door to help them understand that history. Because they are walking past every day. They're going to grow up in that area. They should understand what this place was um, and, and be part of shaping its future. So your advice to kind of other developers would be do the work, do your homework, understand what you've got. Yeah, and heritage is always a very sensitive subject. I mean, it always has been. And there, obviously, there are two aspects of that. that there's, there's the hard physical aspect of buildings, but there's, then there's obviously the way that history is told. And, uh, and, and you need to be mindful of both of those. And I think you know, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, if you're a good developer, you need to be cognizant of, of what the historical context is. And you need to, there's always going to be a lively debate around what you should and shouldn't be doing because, uh, you know, it, it is a, it's a subjective matter you know which buildings do you retain and which ones don't you and the ones you do retain you know um how do you do that and how do you use those and equally when something we try to do as a developer and i mentioned the word curation earlier and i think that's probably the most important thing we try to do is try to make sure that the spaces are curated um, um, for, 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 the, for the community then to adopt and to make their own um, after we've after we've after we've finished, um, but you can only do that curation through a, an understanding of the history, uh, and and you can only do that by listening uh, and to try and understand and then to try to reach a consensus because it's amazing how often there isn't a consensus and people won't think you're doing the right thing. But all you can do, frankly, as a developer is just demonstrate that you've listened to as many people as possible and you've made what you think is a, a, a fair decision. And I think back to that listening, is make sure you're listening to a broad, you know, a broad range of views, not just listen to the people who you want to listen to. So I think that's one of the things that I found really interesting in Bristol, spending you know, a couple of years working on this, and also more recently, actually, um, you know, working very closely with the, with the deputy mayor around culture and really diversifying culture. You know, culture shouldn't just be white middle class educated in central St. Martin. Actually, it should be the Somali community group who are doing uh, interesting pieces of Somali culture, art, art. We should make sure that we are broadening our, our, our listening and, you know, we, should, we just have to invest 
time because you're not going to get it by just putting something up on a notice board and expecting people to respond to it. You've got to do the legwork. You've got to really reach out into those communities to build trust, which enables for us a better development and, and a better space. What, what I'm hearing is like, do your work, don't be lazy, you know, be brave and actually get out there, be transparent. But I think what, what that points to is, you know, what's going, what's going wrong in other uh, situations, but then also what's, what's the benefit? So if, you, if someone's saying, oh God, that, you know, it sounds exhausting. I've got to talk to the historians, I've got to talk to the community, I've got to do all this extra legwork. What's, what's my payoff? Well, it's simple. One, you sleep at night uh, is the first first point, and 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 but secondly, economically, it should make benefit to a business, make advantage uh, to to a, to a business as well. Because ultimately, in terms of when we're looking for new business or for new projects, we usually offer our partners the opportunity to go and visit any one of our previous developments. That is what you leave behind. I mean, that's why I'm in property development is because I get really excited about leaving something behind that that that, that I'm proud of. And I, I think that is your the your 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 heritage that you're creating for the future. So that for me is is it should be should be a reason enough. But you're absolutely right. The main reason people don't do it usually is because they either don't want to hear what they're being told or they are lazy. And and we have a similar adage in design because we see some terrible buildings, you know, and, and equally we go back and look at some of our buildings and they think no, we're proud of all of them, but there are elements on each that we'd like to change and improve on because because you can continue continually uh, learn and get better. But it, but we have an adage in, in design that good design doesn't necessarily have to cost any more. It just needs more thinking. And I think you could apply that to the whole of development. Uh, it, it doesn't need to cost more to do these, these schemes in the right way, but it definitely needs more thinking and more conversation. Which makes me think it needs time. Because often these these pressures, these time pressures, can often constrain us. So, I mean, do you have anything to say about about time? Yeah, I mean, an approach we 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 use a lot is because we're very conscious as a developer when we're developing in Bristol or Brighton or Milton Keynes or Cambridge or Oxford or places like that, that we are not the experts in that location. We do not know what that that, that location needs um, when we start off. So, so we typically will spend a year before we even buy a site in a location, um, talking to all of the local stakeholders, you know, hosting dinners on a broad range of topics um, to get under the skin much better of what that location and that city really needs um and we'll do that typically i will go to speak to the local authorities and to to, to the, the to the politicians and to the senior executive i will we'll do that before we have a site because we want to understand what they are looking for and not just what we're trying to get out of them because unfortunately that's the perception you otherwise have um, and we know that developers and development in general can have quite a bad you know, reputation so it, it makes that make can make that hard. But if you go in without an agenda, it's amazing how how much more honest and transparent the conversation is. So you have to do that up front. Once you've got something that you're perceived to want to try to get out of the local authority, as an example, then it's it's a much harder conversation to have. Oh, like does the poor reputation or the mistrust make your job harder? No, I think because, you know, we are not other developers. You know, I think our track record speaks for itself and our approach speaks for itself. As Barry said, spending a year without a, without a project in a, in a city 
uh, it's not, you know, why would I be spending that much time then? I think it's because we are genuine. We genuinely want to build that relationship and build that trust. And I think when you go in, quite rightly so, you know, initially it's a, you know, why are you talking to me? You know, why do you want to know these things when we don't have, we don't have a development here? And, I, I'm, and it, I'm very upfront because I'm genuinely interested. I think if I do, if I do end up with a development here, it will be a better, it will be a better place because we've had this conversation. And I think it's in, you know, investing in that time for us. We're, we're learning. We're soaking up all that information. And it's, it's a really helpful, um, beneficial process. And I think, you know, unfortunately, as you said, you know, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we don't have the luxury of time. You know, lots of people don't have that. But if you don't do that legwork, you know, your development is not going to be successful. You won't drive the value. You won't create a good place. You won't get trust with people. People won't use it well. You know, for us, that's so important. So we I guess finally, um, as a kind of, I'd like to ask what your best hope is if someone comes to a a citizen who doesn't necessarily live there, comes into a first base development, um, what do you hope that they find? Um, Firstly, and most importantly, I'd, I'd hope they'd find something for them. So something we try to do with our developments as well is make them as inclusive as possible in, in the broader sense of the word. So, for example, if you, if you think about our, our Brighton's uh, scheme, Edward Street Quarter, I'm hoping people will visit and stay, even if they don't have a particular reason to do so. So, you know, we'll have homes, people will be living there, we'll have offices, people will be working there, but there'll be bars and cafes, et cetera, that people will be attending. But we've got public realm. We, we want people to come and visit, sit down, enjoy it, and think this is great. It was the same vision that we had for East Village and Stratford, you know, which was you know, if you go there on a weekend now, the, 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 the parks are packed. A lot of those people aren't local. They've come to visit, to stay, to enjoy. Um, and I think that that's the key element for me is that people come, they think this is a nice space. And in due course, I, I don't want them to think of this as a first base development. It isn't. It's a new piece of their city that has a role in their lives. And that, that, that's ultimately what no, people will forget about us very quickly. And that's good. You know, the Most of the developers that we remember for, for, for some of these schemes is because they've done a really bad job. Uh, and and I actually want to be forgotten. It's not about us. It's very much about the places that we leave behind, and we want the local communities to, to adopt those. I think for me, it's I want to be kind of stimulated and also challenged. I think you know we kind of we can kind of float through life just with mediocreism, and I think what for me personally, pandemic has, has kind of pushed me to be is just a bit more challenged actually to, to, to you know whether it's visually or emotionally or actually just the way we encounter or engage with things just to, to be challenged to be pushed out of that normal so I, I hope that when people come into the places that we create not just because of the physical buildings but actually in the curation of the places and things that they take part in that they are adequately stimulated and adequately challenged as well it's a really interesting concept because it suggests you don't want to just be building anywhere you don't want them to show up and have it be no nowhere at all or nothing new. So you'd like it to have an identity or a recognizable form or something, something, anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And we, we deliberately choose, frankly, loca- cities and locations. We don't work everywhere. And there's, um, we need to be working in locations that I think have a, uh, um, a, a buzz and excitement about them. And if you look at, look at the list of places where we do, do 
developments, they definitely have that. Um, I think we tend then then want to be in a location that we think has the potential to be exciting. Uh, and we then try to create something there that we think is iconic and that people will readily identify. Um, and uh, all of those things are really, really important. Um, and, and the final point, of course, is you need to be working in locations where you have a shared vision with the local stakeholders. Uh, again, I, I, no, otherwise, all you end up doing is relying on planning policy. And if, if you're relying on policy being written in Whitehall to create a great community wherever you are, then you're in big trouble. And that's why I said development for me is like dating, because I think for us, we don't work everywhere. We're not just going to, you know, round, go to every city in, in the UK and, and plonk our development there. No, because we spend this time getting to know a place, investing in the community. We've got to make sure it's a place that we're, you know, the vision aligns with their vision and their ambitions and aspirations and their issues and their concerns are aligned with things that we genuinely believe in. And I mean genuinely believe in. We genuinely believe that by creating this successful place here, we can we can positively impact on childhood obesity in this area. If we don't think we can, well, we move on. But actually, for us, it's about it's something that yeah, you know, I want to get out of bed every day, going, you know what, I'm going to go to Cambridge tomorrow. We're de- delivering a net zero um, carbon development, and I believe that we can genuinely do that and make this place a better city as a result of that. That's why we get excited. Not just because we're cookie cutter in a scheme and you know doing it across every scheme in, in the country. So for me, development is a bit like dating. You've got to get to know the place first, figure out if you're both aligned, figure out if it's going to work, then you consummate and you live happily ever after. So. Brilliant. I think that just leaves me to to thank you both for uh, for dating me today, getting to know me a little bit, and us getting to know anytime. You <laughs> And, uh, and, and yeah, so thank you for your contribution today for, for, uh, for sharing all of that with the developer. Pleasure. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. If you have a radical rethink idea about how we need to make spaces between the buildings differently whether it's policy, practice, or design, you can send it to editorial at thedeveloper.live. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray.